0: Business Executives for National Security welcomes you to Building the Base. Here, thought leaders and practitioners discuss how we can ensure our shared security and prosperity through shaping the future of the National Security Industrial Base. Your hosts are Silicon Valley defense expert, Lauren Badula, along with Ben's distinguished fellow and former head of acquisition for the Navy, Marines, and special operators, Hondo Gertz. Welcome back to Building the Base. Lauren Badula here with my co-host Hondo Gertz, and we're so excited to have the Honorable Katrina McFarland with us today. Katrina McFarland began her career in civil service as a general engineer in the U.S. Marine Corps, so has a technical background, but pivoted to acquisition where she really wanted to get things done and served as Director of Acquisition for the Missile Defense Agency, was president of the Defense Acquisition University, and then worked her way to Assistant Secretary of Defense for acquisition after serving as the Army's acquisition executive. Another interesting fact is Katrina served as a commissioner on the recent National Security Council on Artificial Intelligence, which we'll get into a bit here. So, Katrina, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Yeah, hey, uh, Katrina, it's awesome to see you and uh, and have you here on the show. And as uh, Lauren mentioned, you've got quite an extraordinary career, both in and out of government. But I want to understand how what brought you to start as an engineer in the Marine Corps. Maybe not the most traditional path. Uh what what got you interested and in when kind of what was your uh origin story, so to speak?
2: Oh well, it's kind of simple. Um, my mom escaped from East Germany at the end of World War Two and, and was one of the few surviving members of her family. Originally I was actually going to and I had won a scholarship to uh work on the NASA space shuttle back in nineteen seventies, and when it crashed I was broke and um I interviewed with all the services in labs, but the one that was most interesting to me was the Marine Corps. And my whole goal had been, I think, my entire career is to be an engineer, one, and then to serve uh, national security in whatever form I could.
1: And, and what were those early days like in the Marine Corps as a, as a young engineer, maybe uh, probably not too many female engineers around you? What, what was it like breaking into uh, that group?
2: Well, I have to confess, I grew up in a very small town, and we were dirt poor. And so the kids were split between the parents and I went with my dad. He uh, was a lumberman at the time, cutting trees all over the United States and Canada, and also building buildings and stuff. And I was just another set of helping hands. So I didn't recognize the distance between guys and gals when it came to work. And so there were eight engineers uh, when I got there to the Marine Corps. And it really didn't strike strike me until several years later that it was uncommon because I had been so familiar with working with the predominantly Guy area, so not much really. <laughs> And they were really great to work with. They'd let me do anything I wanted. It was wonderful.
0: That's great, Katrina. And it seems like you really leaned on your roots as an unapologetic engineer, even as Assistant Secretary of Defense for Acquisition. So could you tell our listeners maybe about some of the unique perspectives that your engineering background provided in leading large and complex organizations or projects?
2: Well, to me, that's a really cool question for a lot of people. I think they don't realize that You take the skills that you learn in other places, and they apply broadly to to more places. And my job, I felt, was to make sure that the best products would get in the hands of the warfighters. And it doesn't matter at what scale. It took a time to get to the scale, i.e., when you have 13,000-plus people work for you, you have to have a sense of of scale to be able to manage that and have an understanding of how you manage it. But knowing engineering and being technical in background allowed me to quickly consume what was being put in front of me. And I had that from, gosh, the entry into the Marine Corps. And the other thing is I had some fabulous mentors. I didn't even know I was being mentored a lot of the time. One of my favorite quotes from one of the mentors I had was, that the only thing in life that you can control is your reaction to it. And the second one was from my grandfather, which, who always said the harder that you work, the luckier you get. And between the two of those, as sort of founding principles in my life, I think that uh, it seemed to work out okay.
1: Yeah. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll say it worked out all right. Um, So as we think about the kind of future uh, landscape we're all dealing with, you've been very outspoken, uh, and you and I used to talk about a lot in the building about supply chain and supply chain resilience. I think, um, you know, COVID and, and the aftermath have maybe brought that into the light. What's, what's your sense on uh, are we making progress on understanding supply chains and, and where do we really need to go if we're going to, you know, continue to have the resilience we need with such a uh, an adaptable world out there.
2: Well, we as a nation are a reactive uh, entity. We we are not as I would like us to be when it comes to being ahead of the game, prepared. I think right now we're still experiencing some of the ramifications of long term COVID in terms of the supply chain. So I think we're still motivated, but even As I see some of the studies and some of the activities going on, they seem to have less energy, and that makes me very worried. Um, We recognize two pieces about the supply chain challenge. One was our interdependencies and our dependencies. Some of the interdependencies with collaborative nations is a good thing. It creates a synergy, you know, what they say, uh, friends are temporary, interests are forever. And if we have the ability to have a good interdependency with like-minded nations, that's helpful. But when we have a dependency on a not like-minded nation or government, we have a problem. And we discovered those problems, right? So how do we get around that, I think, is a very, very top level issues. And it's national security isn't only in defense products. Our economy needs to be strong so it creates the resources so that we can afford a solid national security. And that is part of this whole strategy of how do you address the supply chain because we've had very disturbing findings in this area. I'm sure you've spoken to in fact I listened to some of your other efforts. And I know that you've talked about what does that do to us as a nation. And I think that is a piece that we need to strengthen our resolve on, um, put some real deliberate resourcing in place with people who have ownership and training to understand what it means.
0: That's great, Katrina. And I love how in the past you've talked about how the economy and national security are so intertwined. So I'm glad you brought that up here with us today because it's something we really like to zero in. as well. And so as far as supply chain security, there's been a lot of focus on microelectronics, especially with the recent passage of the CHIPS Act. But I'm curious, what's your take? Are there other areas that are so critical to national security that we should be focused on beyond microelectronics?
2: Absolutely. Um, So rare earth and areas such as uh, emerging technology So we don't lose our edge when it comes to innovation of which this nation is so famous for. Rare Earths are important because it's a strategic source and supply and leading edge and emerging technologies because they're the future. And I consider AI one of the areas where we're at the precipice of losing the stretch of endgame in terms of winning the battle, if you would, or race to being the first adapter, first user so i'd say those are the two main areas that i'm personally concerned about
1: yeah katrina i think the other one we've talked a lot about is energetics oh yeah (laughs) which is which was one i would add in and i know you're very uh you're, you're very vocal on that and and again not only just the raw material element of it but as we're seeing you know as Weapons are being depleted. We, you know, we don't have the capacity to rebuild at the scale and speed we want, and so I think we've got to keep focused on that. You mentioned the talent aspect of supply chain. Um, talk a little bit more about that. What, how do we need to, tr- you know, train our government acquisition folks uh, as well as potentially our industrial partners on supply chain?
2: Well, one of the things that I think is really important is that our society has gone so global that we have treated everybody as equals, and the real deciding factor between sourcing a friend or not a friend in terms of the supply uh, chain has been the almighty dollar. How much do we spend? We've been so focused on pressuring down the cost of items, we don't realize necessarily where we're creating a golden handshake or, more importantly, a golden bracelet. And I think that that is an issue for our people who engage in uh, supply chain management at the program manager level to understand what really and fully have they indentured themselves in. We had a hearing on the supply chain about a year back, and that was one of my strongest comments and recommendations to Congress is we need to prevent this from happening again. First, yes, we need to do a cleanup of the current state of affairs when it comes to supply chain, but we need to do a thorough analysis of the supply chain with full disclosure by our suppliers on where they source their materials, source their support so that we have the fullest of understanding of where our dependencies are created and whether that is going to impact our ability, as it is shown today, uh, to create a vulnerability or even worse, a situation where we don't have what we need. That ties, unfortunately, to one other aspect of the supply chain, and that's lead time. So one is getting the materials. The second is the lead time to be able to take advantage of those material. For example, if we continue to have missile inventory or energetics that have a lead time to develop to the point of usage five or more years, we have basically chained ourselves to a a problem. And we as engineering people and technical people need to understand how to reduce that lead time so that as we require the asset or the product or the material is available to us. There's different ways and strategies of doing that. Hedging is one, support from internal those are strategies that we as a program management community and as a nation, and it doesn't just extend into defense. This is national food supply, as you mentioned, energetics. There's a whole gamut of things that as a nation we need to take advantage of in terms of our intellect to to make sure that we are protecting ourselves long-term.
0: And Katrina, you mentioned artificial intelligence as a critical technology when it comes to supply chain issues and vulnerabilities. And we talked about earlier how you served as a commissioner on the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence, which was really the most comprehensive look at how AI will impact our national security. So, And you also talked about the opportunity of getting this right or our general outlook around supply chain vulnerabilities. What does winning in the age of AI
2: look like? So for us as a nation, in my experience from the period of time that we looked at the technology space of artificial intelligence, what we as a commission saw was that AI is like electricity from the 1800s. And it's going to be everywhere in the future. And if we really take a look at the history of AI, it started all over the globe. But the United States, based on its uh, approach and innovation as the skills for uh, our people, we saw that we are losing that competitive edge that other nations have recognized and are harnessing the technology faster than we are. Some of that's related to the fact that we as a nation have learned over time that we have to adapt and utilize technology safely. And we have protocols in place and we have a risk tolerance that is focused on successful outcomes that sometimes slows us down and governments that don't have that risk tolerance adapt really quickly and sometimes to their peril. From the Commission's view, we need to regain that edge, that competitive edge, that future edge, because artificial intelligence is no longer just in computing, it's in biology, it's in computing, it's in material science, and they're all in this convergence path, And for us as a nation to have what we consider in our value uh, system with like-minded nations, we need to promulgate this technology safely and within the roles of what we believe are freedom-preserving. So no surveillance of the population, no constraints and control of people or things or et cetera. So right now, uh, we're at a precipice where if we don't move out quickly in terms of broad technologies to include artificial intelligence, we will lose. And we recommended a technology competitive council that it would be at the co- cabinet level so that we would have a national artificial intelligence strategy in place that the nation could embrace and act on because we're good when we're galvanized with a common purpose.
1: And Katrina, have you, what's your sense since the commission has, um, have those recommendations been acted on or are we still in the fixing two stage, What's your, what's your sense of progress since the commission finished up?
2: Well, fortunately, there were other areas that um, people were working on similar AI agenda items, and I believe between the commission and these other places like Cyber Solarium, et cetera, et cetera, pulled together uh, some very, I'd say, appropriate legislation and associated resources. One of which I think uh, Laura mentioned, which is the chip stack. So money is starting to come into play, which will help um, seed the ability to adapt and adopt and create new innovations in this area. But we have a far, we have a long way to go. We're not where we should be right now. When we finished up the report, we said we needed to be AI ready by 2025. And I don't think we're going to make that goal, not at the time, that at the speed that we're acting. Um, And I think it was uh, Winston Churchill said that the Americans always do the right thing after they've tried everything else. And I think we're taking a little of that on right now. Uh, I believe that we need to be uh, more strategic in our approach to this new world, this next generation of innovation and evolution, if you would. And we need the highest levels of intellect to engage and talent to grow and people in Positions of authority and responsibility to have a common purpose, and so those are the things that I think will change the future to our better. But uh, we're working on it.
1: So we've talked, uh, you know, technology and supply chain and AI. But when you and I were in the building, we talked a lot about people. Uh, and many of the meetings we had on in acquisition was about the people side of things, not just the process side of things. And uh, you know, given your experience as a president of DAU and in the building and looking a little bit now from the outside in, where do you assess our, I would say readiness to lead this new age of technology, you know, whether it's AI ready by 2025 or software uh, embedded systems, where do you see the DOD acquisition workforce right now in terms of talent and where are the biggest gaps and, and how would you recommend we work together to close those gaps?
2: Thank you, Konto. Of course, you know me well enough to ask that question because it's one of my personal high level of interest. One thing I learned working with the Marine Corps of the many I learned was that every person, no matter what they are, has some golden nugget of talent that you need to find. And when you find it, you can motivate them to produce way above expectations, their own included. In our society, our people, our ability to bring that to the surface is our, one of our strongest talent and our skills as a nation is to allow everybody to have their freedoms independently and tolerate it, but then take the strength that all of that does and bring it to the surface. And DAU is no different. Um, They're very much engaged in using new technologies to try to raise the gain of our already talented and already, frankly, overworked acquisition workforce. And when I talk acquisition, it's the big A. It's not just program management. It's requirements generation. It's the controllers. It's everybody. And I think that that, to me, is where the university needs some help. Um, They need to be recognized. They need to be helped to bring up that gain. And they need to have access to a broader number of workforce um, people to be able to get into the technology space and help people understand where this technology needs to be and how it needs to be managed. and and I think that is uh, where they're heading. But anything we can do to foster support and bring um, some real resources to there would be helpful.
0: Katrina, I, I went back and listened to some remarks you gave in 2016 at the Army's big conference, AUSA. And, and one of the questions you received was about all the different innovation hubs and specifically the Army's rapid capabilities Office. And so much of our country's security and prosperity today are linked to the industrial base that grew out of World War II. And we're at this pivoting moment here where we know the high tech sector plays a critical role in national security and defense. I'm curious here we are six years later from the time you gave those remarks. How do you see DOD doing in terms of bringing in the high tech sector or non traditional players from an acquisition perspective?
2: Well, I wish I had something better to say. We're not doing good. And in fact, I would say we're doing worse than six years ago. Because when we stumble and fall and stretch to try to reach for new ways of the, or innovative ways of doing things without thinking through of the consequences, we actually damage things. I will say some of the labs, and in particularly the, the service labs, are, are definitely um, amping up their game, which I believe, if you go back to your thoughts, uh, about World War II, post World War II, there was a bunch of engineers who'd worked on things that you can imagine, like the Manhattan Project, et cetera, because the nation's, uh, need, um, to be able to succeed in the war. Those engineers were standing around. And the goal that came out of that from the cabinet was let's stand them up to support the federal government so that they have access to that high-end academic talent. And they turned into the FFRDCs and all of these uh, entities that support. But unfortunately, over time, that support eroded into people who made themselves more and more like the government, which was not the intent. The intent was to be able to access on a revolving basis the top-end talent to support the government who had to be process burdened. The government is a balance between public uh, and uh, nation's good. And so, public and national security are always in the balance. And in order to take care of the public, you have to do things like competition and free and open. And national security sometimes needs you to go directly. And in between sits the government, which was supposed to have the support of this high end technology. And I'm not saying that these people aren't skilled, it's just that we need to reinvigorate the access to an intermediary, which would be these engineering houses, high-end skilled, and we need to create vehicles in a new technology era that couldn't have even have been imagined post-World War II to be able to access and utilize and harness that industrial-based talent that's out there. So we need the smart government people, like our last question, that are talented and they'll have all the skills, if you would, to be good customers. You need them to be able to have that of Uh, knowledge about the technology amplified and accelerated by the SFRDCs and these people who are supposed to be intermediaries between the government and industry. And you need to give access to industry that's uh, quick, democratized, so everybody can get that uh, talent and access quickly. And you need to think about restructuring. And this is um, me doing Don Quixote at the windmills, but I'll put it out there because there is a budget commission going on. You need to restructure how the resources, that is the budget, is formulated and distributed so that we can actually keep pace with the technologies that we need.
0: It's interesting, Katrina. I haven't heard many folks, especially those as expert as you are in acquisition and and defense in particular, talk about how we we may be actually um, losing traction or in in worse shape today than we were, say, five years ago. And I think one thing that's changed is you've seen a lot more companies in the past five years step up with interest and maybe as a result noise on both sides. But I agree. I think in, in some ways it's more difficult on the private sector side to navigate acquisition because you don't know where to start. There are so many innovation hubs. And one controversial vehicle, you talked about the need for more vehicles um, for this effort, are are SIBRs. And these are the small business and innovation and research vehicles. We're we're curious for your take on SIBRs. What do you think? Are they effective or could they
2: use some uh, improvements? They have been highly effective in the past. Highly, highly effective. We wouldn't have telecommunications if it hadn't been for SIBRS and DARPA, Defense Acquisition Research Group. You know, those folks that are out there who've used SIBRS in the past have recognized the skill. But what happens similar to a tax form every year is that people start to figure out the tax form to their advantage because again, resources and profit are what motivate people. And uh, certain, sometimes that for motivation overcomes the objective of the Original design of the system. And what we need to do is make sure that the SIBBERS is working to the intent and revisit how those uh, SIBRS are being um, done and ensure, because it's a very low dollar figure, but it's the only uh, funds that have no uh, defined um, place where they're going to be used. And I'm not saying it again, as an engineer, my English isn't perfect, but. Um, SIBRS is a tax on money that was appropriated for an item, let's say a ship. And a certain percentage goes to whatever research could be done by small business that would help the government. So in the year of execution, you can use that dollars for something that you haven't done an appropriation review for a specific end item. It's the only monies that are out there that can do that. That is panacea for a good program manager. So when I'm out there and I'm trying to build something and I have a weak link or I see some innovative technology out there, I can actually buy it in the year of execution. Again, no other funds do that. Two-year planning period to get money. So for me, Sivers is a fabulous tool we can always improve upon things but the worst thing we can do is ever take that away from the toolkit because it is primo important to a program manager when they see breakthrough technologies that create vulnerabilities to their systems or their capability
1: yeah katrina you know program managers effective program managers and and counterparts in uh on the industrial side understand all the different tools that are out there and and like a like a Conductor bring all these different tools together to create music, whether that's Sibbers or foreign comparative testing. And we talked about supply chain vulnerabilities. You know, I've seen creative program managers use Sibbers as a way to see where there's new technologies, where they've got a supply chain weakness. I've also seen program managers do the same with allies and partners and weave them in. Uh, to their programs to create resilience and, and depth and breadth. Um, how do you see our working with allies and partners changing over the next coming years? As as we try and take on these industrial challenges, we have. You know, we I don't think we can afford to have an industrial base solely in America that will be both uh, deep enough and wide enough uh, and effective. And uh, this kind of these new global competitions, but you spend a lot of time in the building wrestling with, you know, the trade off between technology and security and resilience. How do you see that changing over the coming years?
2: Well, I think there's some really interestingly positive changes that are going on, and they're of course complemented in a different direction on some other areas that are negative. So I'll start with the positive. I think one of the things that we as like-minded nations in recognition of our independence and freedom have done is realize that we need to work together, common purpose, understanding common issues and threads. I've never seen more activity on interoperability and, and common equipment and work on how do we look at the uh, strategy of development of AI and infrastructure, 5G, for example. We're actually thinking strategically uh, slow, but we're thinking strategically in a lot of areas. When we met as a commission with the International Consortium as one of the uh, pillars that we worked with, we had uh, 72 nations um, actually work with us to understand the ethics as well as the stresses technology of this nature would bring and how do we work together. So I think there is a common energy against a common enemy. However, we've created entanglements by buying and selling that can be fra- uh, causing a fragile relationship and also can damage other countries as well as ourselves and we have to be very thoughtful about it, going back to your earlier premise on educating the workforce we need to be thoughtful about um, we have to make sure. That our partners that are, you know, sadly, most of them smaller than us, uh, as far as the fiscal engines, have the ability to have their sovereignty and the strength of their economic engines um, and preserving that strength. Because if we ever have, God forbid, uh, a conflict, we want them to stand beside us and contribute. And so do they. And so I think the material sciences, uh, rare earth, the elemental science and technologies we need to be able to share at some level. And we need to embrace what what they can develop. And, and we need to be thoughtful about how we interoperate and sell our equipment or our skills or our talent. That, to me, can be a negative if not done appropriately.
0: And shifting gears a little bit, Katrina, you've been out of the U.S. government for several years now and work with a lot of interesting tech companies, including as an advisor and sitting on boards. I'm curious, has anything surprised you about your time in the private sector? And is there anything that the private sector can be doing to help with this issue?
2: Wow. Oh, geez. Um, First of all, I am always impressed by the depth and skill of the talent that I walk and talk with. Just amazing to me. But I'm also totally amazed about the lack of understanding of the government, their customer. One of the things that I find myself mostly engaged in is explaining things about why does the government do this? Or how does this government think? Or how do I get to work with the government better? And that's even more prevalent in the small. And I decided for the most part, I was going to work in in some areas of research and engineering hence my national academies and the Army Science Board. And I was going to work with small so that I could help as much as I could where I found innovative technologies, help them access the government. So I kind of understood it at the small. But what has amazed me is it also is the thirst for understanding reaches all the way up to the larger companies who have a lot in terms of depth and resources to offer to the government. The second thing, which may not fit the premise of this conversation, but I'm going to throw it out there anyway, is that I was always told in the government that we had the lousiest HR system ever, and it would take years for anybody to get employed. Well, I'd like to say that I've discovered in the industry, it's not that much better, which is a surprise to me because I felt that they could just tap somebody on the shoulder and bring somebody in. And they could get rid of people, if you would, very caustically stated, but simply put that if the person wasn't producing or working, they could easily remove them. And it is the same, if not worse, than the government. That's just a sidebar. But to me, that's uh, issue for us, us, us as a nation if we do not know how to adapt quickly and resource quickly and move quickly, because this is all about a competition. Competition to preserve our, you know, national security, but more importantly, our way of life. So we need to think that through as a nation. Yeah, I think
1: you know there was there's always this fear of the revolving door, but I think to some degree that's hampered both sides from being able to have a fluid workforce that can understand and appreciate both sides, uh, because right. you, know, you know the the government is a uh, is a tough customer, but an important one, and and I think over the last couple of years many companies have learned, uh, can be a reliable one when things are going bad. Um, and, and so there was, you know, we, we have to figure out both the people side of this, uh, and, the you know, I would say the business side that allows things to be much more fluid, uh, if we're going to compete in that, um, how do you see, um, talent? You know, there's everybody's struggling for talent. I think to some degree right now, I have been somewhat, um, buoyed by the number of, uh, up and comers who are interested in joining national security, maybe not in a way, uh, or at the level they, that was five years ago or eight years ago. Are, are you seeing the same thing when you talk to and mentor young folks? Are you seeing folks interested in national security or do we need to be doing more to, um, make pathways for them to get involved in in whatever way they think is important to them.
2: Well, I think um, to comment in general, the last couple of years with COVID, and now with Ukraine, has created more energy in our people to realize that we aren't you know uh, living in a world of uh, like minded nations or governments. And that does bring out patriotism in young people who strive to have something meaningful to do for their life. And I'm thrilled by that. But I know it's a numbers game and I think we can improve. And in fact, one of the efforts of the commission was talking about an education renaissance. We still are operating in decades old fashion of education. And only with COVID did we open up to realize that virtual training is a tool that could actually improve and raise the gain in our people. And we have a large number of people that are in this situation where they're somewhere having maybe gotten a high school degree, maybe not, and not being able to reach and attain a college degree. And they're a skill in a workforce that we should tap into. And we should think about certification and other means of getting these people productively into a higher skill set where they could work and earn certificates so they can get themselves uh, hired, if you would, in skills over time. And that's a large workforce that we should take on. And that includes in the government. We need to revisit what we value and how we value it because we've created impediments that maybe a couple decades ago made sense. But in today's environment, with what we can do online, similar to today, uh, with all of its pain points and learning and, and rough edges, we can really reach out to a larger population. Of all varying degrees of intellect and tap into that resource.
0: Katrina, one thing you've made clear throughout really all your answers is the importance of workforce issues and talent. So thank, thank you for all you're doing on that front. And I think just your your points about adapting, resourcing, and moving quickly at such a an pivotal and, and competitive time are spot on to what we're looking for. So thank you so much, Katrina, for joining us today. A lot of great ideas.
2: All right. Thanks so much. This has been great and I appreciate it. You've been listening to Building the Base, a podcast from the Business Executives for National Security. Join hundreds of senior leaders and executives dedicated to the mission of keeping our nation safe. Check out our projects we're currently working with, important upcoming events, and the many ways you can get involved at www.bens.org.